Hello and welcome back to the NACA podcast. I'm Doug Church, Deputy Director of Public Affairs at the NACA National Office in Washington, D.C. Today we have an interview with Dustin Newell, Houston Center member. The aviation bug hit Newell at a very young age, five or six by his estimation, and it's never let go over these past 35 years. In fact, he says his love of flying has grown even stronger. For Newell, next month will mark his 10th anniversary of being an air traffic controller all at Houston Center. It's also the 26th anniversary of his first flight at age 14. His transition to air traffic control when he was 30 followed a job at Houston Center in tech ops in the environmental unit. Before that, he was in the U.S. Navy as an aviation electrician. He also volunteered last July as part of the team of NACA members who worked with pilots, kids, and attendees at the Experimental Aircraft Association's annual Air Venture Fly-In in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Here's our interview with Dustin. Tell me about what it's what it's been like uh, through the course of your career, at, particularly at Houston Center. Well, I mean, with Houston Center itself, I, I was very blessed to, to just be downstairs and move upstairs. So, you know, going through, I'd already been through training at the academy on the, on the tech ops side for many, many, many more months. So transitioning to the uh, air traffic side with training wasn't, uh, wasn't all that difficult initially, but uh, it was, it was very stressful with, you know, family and you know we had little ones at the time and trying to uh juggle bills and 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 make life work um you know but the people at houston i'm just andrew and chris and all of them just when when i was picking their brains they were a fact rep at the time uh, um man it's uh, uh they helped me tremendously in making the transition um you know there were some bumps in the road but uh I always tell people if you know, I give a couple speeches to high schools every now and then about yeah. uh, about the career, and I always tell people, man, if 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 my old country bumpkin hillbilly butt from Missouri can do this, then just about anybody can. So just uh, just a matter of applying yourself and uh, and you know dedicating yourself to do the job is what way I kind of look at it. You're a native of Missouri. Where in Missouri? I grew up uh, southern Missouri, Springfield area. Well, was was a little town called Republic. It ain't so little anymore, but um, yeah, right around in there. And parents still live in that area, mom, dad. And, but uh, that's God's country to me. It was just that Midwestern hospitality, and just, there's just absolutely nothing like it. It's, it's kind of hard to explain until you experience it. Let me ask you now about, about piloting, which is obviously something you, you're truly passionate about and you write so eloquently about it on Facebook and, and elsewhere. Um, right. You mentioned that 14 was the first time that you flew. Can you tell me how, how that occurred and, and what that was like? Uh, yeah, I, uh, my mom, uh, she always knew that I'd, I'd love flying since I was a kid, man. I'd lay there in the backyard staring at airplanes as much as I possibly could when I was a kid and and we lived uh, we lived over at Fort Leonard Wood, and there's cannon ranges around that area. So the military comes over and drops their bombs and shoots the targets and stuff. And um, my dad used to take me to the uh, to the range, and we'd sit up in the tower and and uh, watch the A10s and the F4s come in and strafe the targets. And it just I, just ever since I can remember, I've just loved flying. Um, when Top Gun came out, I bugged my mom to uh, take me. She took me to the theaters 26 times to watch that movie. 26. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. And then uh, I think the biggest, you know, the biggest thing, when I was in, 
maybe seventh grade, eighth grade, uh, my mom took me to uh, um, took me to the Smithsonian in Washington, and for three days and walked around that thing, and it just I've had just, I've had the bug. I mean, I don't know how to really explain it. Uh, totally, it's it's just something that eats you up. <laughs> uh, and when I what are the specifics yeah, about going about getting getting into an airplane at, at that age, at the age of fourteen? Was it a local airfield? What kind of airplane? How did you how did you train? Yeah, it was a local. Uh, it was actually the first one was at Springfield. My first uh, flight was Springfield Regional Pro Flight. I think is what the company was at the time. Um, this old little Cessna one fifty, and it was more of a discovery flight. And they still actually hold those discovery flights today. I think you can still do a discovery flight for thirty five dollars. I was, I was just hooked after getting in the airplane for the first time and actually getting to take off by yourself or, you know, with assistance of the instructor at 14 years old, I was just smitten. I mean, I just, I was hooked. Um, and then eventually we went to, I went to another little airport down the road called Aurora airport, flew there almost solo, didn't solo there. And then, uh, you know, I don't know, life kind of got in the way a little bit again and I didn't fly for a while and I joined the Navy at 18 years old, actually I quit high school and joined the Navy. Um, um, kind of flew a little bit in the Navy, almost, almost finished my, my license in the Navy and then, uh, got married, had kids and we moved to Houston. When I moved to Houston, my first thing was I'm finishing this license and I did. So finished it, went and got my instrument rating right after started working on my commercial, um, and then I had a good friend out here that was um, that was killed in a mishap at Conroe Airport, and uh, well, that, hit, that hit me pretty hard. But uh, after that, I just kind of severed ties and didn't fly with that company anymore. And uh-huh. uh, I had more kids, so you know, money, money, another problem. But um, just one day, uh, I don't know, about seven, eight years ago, I, uh, I saw a little 150 for sale, and I bought it. <laughs> Got it. Uh, took it to the airport out here and kind of I looked up and down the runway and said, well, it's got to be like riding a bike. Okay. So, yeah, just uh, started flying again. And, man, I just I try to fly every well, almost every week now, at least. I try to do a pilots for patients mission uh, once, once, twice a month, if I can, depending on the missions, the, the days. Um, I mean, we have a ton of missions that uh, that we can pick up but it just kind of you know it depends on my schedule and their schedule and but uh actually i bought the uh my piper arrow that i bought uh i bought that specifically to do pilots for patients huh. that, that was my whole purchase for the plane i mean of course i use it personally too but um when I bought it, I was looking for a particular airplane to be able to get patients comfortably back and forth and something nice and, you know, IFR rated. So I can actually fly hard IFR in it if I have to. I prefer not to, but, um, but. Uh, Tell us what what the organization is all about and uh, and when did they get started and how did you get in, 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 uh, in coordinating with them to begin flying for them? Well, many, many years ago, I flew for what people, they you still they fly today, Angel Flight. You know, it's a popular all the way around the around the um, uh, United States. Uh-huh. But uh, I flew for them for a while, and you know, I just wanted uh, another gentleman here at the airport. And actually, Hugh McFarland at, uh, at I-90 
flies for pilots for patients also. And we got to talking at the airport one day, and I had never really heard about this this um, group of pilots. And when I started, you know, looking into them and, and researching them, and I, um, I was sold. I was like, man, they're local. All the flights are, are pretty local. I say local. Pilots for Patients is based out of Monroe, Louisiana. Yes. And it was it was actually started by Sharon and Philip Thomas. Um, I want to say I believe 2008. They started the they started the um, the company or I guess the nonprofit. Uh, back then it was only five pilots I think is what they started with, and now they have we have over 140 pilots, um, mostly throughout the Louisiana, but uh, Louisiana, Texas, to Houston is a big base of pilots because MD Anderson is here and that's where about 90 percent of these patients come is to md anderson for their particular treatments mostly for i mean different diseases um um that they're treated for but uh i don't know kind of a background on them so far since the inception of Pfizer patients they've they've completed uh, 4357 total missions wow which equals 1,611,750 total miles flown, which is also equal to 75 times around the equator. Wow, that's fantastic. And then um, we have right now over 700 uh, individual patients that have flown with us with uh, over 140 different types of illnesses. So, but, I mean, the, the patients themselves have to have they have to be non-ambulatory, so they have to be able to, you know, get into the airplane, get out of the airplane. Um, you know, we we assist them, obviously, but the the whole idea behind behind it is what I like. You know, these you figure these guys come down here, and you know, through all the Midwest. I mean, I flew a I flew a patient last Monday. She was on her last one, brought her husband with her um, for breast cancer. And she lives in Crossett, Arkansas, which is still like an hour north of Monroe. So you figure a five-hour drive just from Monroe to Houston, and then you know, five hours back, that's the last thing that uh, one of these patients wants to deal with after radiation or chemotherapy. I mean, it just wipes them out. So with the hour and 10, hour and 15-minute flight, um, you know, to get them back it's just to me i i used to go and get hundred dollar hamburgers and you know I'd run jump an airplane and fly over to to there was a great little airport over in uh, brenham and of course they sell blue bell ice cream there and all the girls <laughs> it was a 1950s diner style place and the girls all had their soda fountain outfits on it was pretty cool but you know i'd spend 125 dollars in gas just going there and getting a hamburger just to say i flew well, I mean, what better to give back to humanity than than fly these patients and spend about the same amount of money, uh, and I get just pride and joy in it every time I every time I fly. Well, I can imagine just the, the reactions that that you get, uh, the gratitude uh, from the patients and their families. Um, can you talk about that a little bit at the end of a flight and, and what that? You, you obviously you know you've made a difference, but I imagine the reactions you get uh, make it all worthwhile. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my first, my first, uh, uh, patient was an elderly lady. And I want to say she, 
uh, some a type of cancer. I don't remember that. I Maybe mean, it was kidney cancer. But uh, my first one, when I, I brought her back from from here, and all I had at the time was an old beat up uh, Piper Warrior. I mean, it wasn't a very pretty airplane, but it gets you from point A to point B. But <laughs> she was just, I told her, you know, I said, look, it ain't pretty, but, you know, it's going to get us there. And she kind of laughed and giggled about it. But, uh, you know, we got halfway through the flight and we got to talking a little bit. And she, man, she got to telling me her life story and almost just had me in tears <laughs> by, the time I, by the time I got there. I mean, it was like, God. What this lady had been through through her life was just uh, man it was just it was astonishing but uh i mean the big old hugs at the end i mean that's that's all that's all you could ask for is uh you know i know they appreciate what they what, what we're doing for them and i mean i i get the, i get the joy of of helping them out and the joy of flying all in one so i mean to me it's a win-win absolutely but, yeah. uh, you just completed your 10th flight uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, I understand they, uh, as you're uh, marking that occasion, you got a shirt and a, uh, a box of oil. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of their tradition. After every 10 missions, uh, you, they, give you a, uh, they give you one of those shirts, and then they give you a case of oil um, uh, after completing it. Then they got some other things. I mean, they got some... Oh, let's see. Uh, I want to say they give you a, a a jacket after a leather jacket after a hundred missions or something, or maybe fifty missions. But um, I mean, they've had a lot of pilots. Uh, I think fifty something pilots have flown over fifty missions. There's over a hundred pilots have done over a hundred missions, and I think there's a um, there's over two hundred pilots that have flown over two hundred missions. So it's, I mean, it's amazing. I, I posted one today. Glenn Northcott. He's got a King Air. Um, I hate he fit i want to say five or six patients in one flight today alone yeah so i mean for somebody like that to give back to you know, having having a plane like that and be able to utilize it uh i mean it's amazing and his story is absolutely amazing too um and what that man has been through if you there's a short video of him and pilots for patients and man if it don't shed you don't shed a tear watching it it just wow um pretty pretty touching also sure because it, it it affected him i think he lost his wife to breast cancer oh, okay okay so kind of means much to him too absolutely so to so take us back one year and now as we pass labor day weekend you know, this is obviously top of mind hurricane season and, right. and certainly what occurred in the houston and gulf coast region a year ago take me back to that time and and what that was like at the center i mean obviously it was a sort of a all hands on deck, everybody uh, doing what they could, and, and uh, you know, obviously you had to take care of your families as well. Uh, take us through your itinerary through those days as the rain started to fall, both from a personal standpoint and, and that of, uh, of a controller, and then sort of the, the role that you ended up playing you know, using your airplane a little bit as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I guess fortunately for myself, when the rain started, uh, it was funny the week before I, I, I said it back to the week before even even uh harvey hit we were sitting at work in our crew briefing and uh they were talking about the, the tropical disturbance out there and and uh i got to i got to sit next to the guy next to me and i looked over him and said you know and it was actually my trainee at the time i said 
I don't got a good feeling about this one. I think this one's going to come back in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, and I think we're going to get hit with a hurricane. He goes, you think so? I said, yeah. I said, man, this thing just, something don't seem right about it. I said, uh, you know, lived here for 14, 15 years, well, seven, well, maybe 17 years now, 17 years. I said, uh, it just, I don't know, I've got a funny feeling about it. And, uh, you know, sure, as you know, the next day, oh, it's got more of a uh, chance to develop. And then the next day, a bigger chance to develop. And then all of a sudden, hey, you guys better prepare. Well, I was already prepared. I was like, man, I, I got a generator all out because, you know, I just had this just sixth sense of, of what was going to happen. But, uh, you know, fast forward to the next week, obviously, I don't think anybody even would have remotely thought we were going to get that unprecedented amount of rain. Um, I mean, I was on my days off when it first started, and when it really got to going, uh, when it kind of backed up over, when it made landfall down there and was at uh, Rockwall or Palacious area, Palacious area, you know, it made landfall there, but it backed up onto us with all the rain. Um, I mean, it, I, it's, it was indescribable also just how much water there was. Um, I was fighting to keep water out of my new house, and luckily I did, but there was a lot of controllers that were very li- – lived in areas that you would never have thought would have flooded, and, you know, and they did. But I think once, once every, the devastation hit, um, we just you – know, just everybody went to help each other out. Hey, I got this. Hey, I got that. Uh, our local and, you know, Andrew and Chris and all of them started. Oh, I was at that rescue, I think a real rescue fund or whatever. And the, and the list serve that uh, was hitting up and trying to coordinate uh, items back and forth yeah. um, for people needing you know, de- dehumidifiers were extremely, you know, important um, tools, labor. I mean, I grabbed my son and said, come on, we're going to go help. So we went and helped just tear out people's stuff. Cause during a flood like that, the first thing you got to do is you got to get the drywall out of there. You got to start drying it out. Uh-huh. Um, so, but I mean, it's just labor intensive getting it all out. I mean, it looks like a war zone when you walk through the, you know, walk through those communities, uh, Kingwood area and Conroe. And, and, and that's where you, I mean, were, you and your son were, were helping out was that area? Yeah, well, we had we we kind of went back and forth between two of the two of the uh, co-workers' places, uh, Christy Hosseth and uh, and um, uh, Andre Blank on the other one, uh, Michael Trejo. Okay. We uh we went back and forth between those two houses and and uh it just kind of throwing some goods around. Well, then I got word from my old my old air traffic manager or not air traffic manager she was or is now the air traffic manager at Beaumont. Um, I'd gotten word that there was a bunch of controllers over there because the water was over there also, but obviously Houston was a, a bigger, um, media outlet for it, I guess per se, but Beaumont was hit just as bad, uh, if not worse in some areas. Well, the problem of it was over there, they were, they were isolated. So they had controllers who were, who were, uh, flooded and i think two or three flooded over there uh-huh. but the main thing was they couldn't get a lot of them couldn't get home and none of them could get supplies so because i mean trucks couldn't get to beaumont for just milk eggs you name it uh bread just just essential items so uh, uh a friend of mine uh captain or johnny winston from united has a 
plane out here also and had my other airplane and um i told him I said, hey man if i can if i can go get the supplies and that was also kind of a challenge around here was finding eggs and milk and stuff too here because uh, stuff like that people just wipe it off the shelves when when a big storm hits but i finally rounded up two airplanes full of uh <laughs> of stuff toilet paper and and kind of sent the uh, their rep a message as to what else they might need and uh, uh chris and ashley Kur- or um ashley kurtzinger and got some more items for me we just packed i packed that planes completely full mm-hmm. just about within about a pound of gross weight and me and Johnny took off, flew over there, landed, and unloaded it, gave it to them. They backed the truck up to them, and they just got them through the week. I imagine so, that was met with uh, a great deal of, of happiness. Oh, yeah, for sure. They went one of them like, man, I haven't had a piece of, I haven't had an actual sandwich for, for three days. Thank you. <laughs> I actually have it with bread now. <laughs> Another one, the other one, the other gal says, yeah, my, cause my daughter was so mad at me the other morning because she didn't, she, she was eating she'd been eating cereal for three days with no milk i'm like well i I took them i think about eight or nine gallons of milk all i could find around here i want to say about eight dozen eggs and that was old that was one of the things we were kind of laughing about on the way over there i said i hope we don't hit any you know turbulence or nothing (laughs) because i go busting these eggs all over the place and that's that ain't gonna be fun to clean up well i imagine from you you had a certainly a, a view of the of the damage uh, in many locations because of, of the flights that you were taking what, what was that like to see from above as to what the storms havoc had, had wrought oh it was amazing um I'll, I'll send you some pictures of uh of the beaumont area when we left out of there just the seeing all the the, the petroleum plants underwater i mean you would never have thought it but they were underwater. Every highway going into Beaumont was just completely over water, over the water. I ten included, I or US ninety. I mean, it was one hundred five going out there. That's how I. That's how I go out there if I drove. But um, yeah, it was just it was amazing. I just undescribable uh, seeing the. Well, drone footage of just like Houston area. Um, I, wow, um, I just I hope we never have to experience anything like that ever again. Our thanks to Dustin Newell from Houston Center for his time with this interview this week. We thank you for joining us on this latest edition of the NACA podcast. We hope you have a great week. We'll talk to you very soon. <laughs>